0: Sunlight blinds you. Air rushes past you as the world fades to a blur. Nothing else matters. Just this moment, here and now. Blood, sweat, and tears were the least of what you gave. Now you're in a new country with the eyes of the world watching and dissecting your every move. Sweat pours down your face as merciless heat beats down on all sides. Your muscles are aching, begging you to stop, but you can't. Not yet. Your team still needs you. They're counting on you. Your family is counting on you. This isn't a hobby, it's a job. Fame and glory mean nothing. What matters here is legacy. And even though this job could cost you your life, you'll be denied all of that. You're one of the thousands of migrant laborers building the Olympic stadiums. I'm your host, Harper Hunt, and this is Cursed Knowledge. games. I don't mean as an athlete. I know that's something like 10% luck, 20% skill, or if you come from the Yogi Berra school, a mathematically impossible mix of mental and physical. I mean, how do you literally create the games? How do you choose the location, build the infrastructure, run the actual events? Watching from your couch is easy. It's easy to pass judgment on sports you only just learned existed. It's easy to forget the thousands of people who worked to make this event a reality. It is a colossal multi-level tax charged by corrupt multinational organizations on cities, towns, citizens, residents and laborers that ultimately allows governments and powerful institutions in power to reset their narrative both domestically and abroad. No twist at the end of this episode. The cursed knowledge is up front. The Olympics are horse shit, and not because of dressage. So let's start with those paragons of integrity. The International Olympic Committee. The self-titled Guardian of the Olympic Games. It's their job to set and enforce the standards of the games. They are the spooky club that makes all the big decisions. Well, color of the napkin? No. How to punish Russia for a state-sponsored doping scandal? Yes. Their most regular and one of their most important jobs is choosing the location of the next Olympics. Hosting the Olympics is a big deal. It's a sign of international recognition and trust in the host country. And it's a chance to earn millions in tourism, both during the Games and after. It's a chance to show off. Your people, your culture, your cities... To rewrite your narrative if things for you in global politics have gone not so well lately. The host cities for the Summer and Winter Olympics are chosen at least four to seven years in advance to give the host city time to prepare. The IOC is responsible for choosing these host cities. It's a dubious honor and a complicated process. First, countries will submit their cities as potential candidates. Only a few cities will be able to realistically host an event like the Olympics. They need the space for the athlete housing, stadiums, and tourism. Now that the Olympics has added surfing as a sport, easy access to open water with surfable waves is a must. In the Winter Olympics, a cold and snowy environment is a pretty basic expectation. Unless you're Russia for the Sochi Olympics, and the snow melted so everyone is competing on fake slush. Once the candidates have been nominated, the IOC will discuss the merits of each city. Then it's time for a secret ballot. There was a big scandal surrounding the 2002 Winter Olympics. The event was hosted by Salt Lake City. The city had tried to host the Olympics four times before their bid was finally accepted in 1995. Of course, the idea of a long-awaited dream coming true is completely unrealistic for the Olympics. In 1998, members of the IOC were accused of taking bribes from the Salt Lake Organizing Committee during the bidding process. Soon, there were four independent investigations happening. Eventually, the U.S. Department of Justice filed 15 charges of bribery and fraud. But don't worry, the IOC also accepted bribes when deciding the 1998 and 2000 Olympics. So everyone's cheating. And if they aren't cheating, they're spending millions of dollars to convince everyone that their city's narrative aligns with whatever narrative the IOC wants to push about the Olympics themselves. It's narrative all the way down. Now that we've chosen our host city through dubious means, it's time for everyone's favorite part, building infrastructure. Please hold your deafening cheers till the end, folks. Okay, I know infrastructure and architecture are pretty boring to talk about. Just give me like five minutes. Remember when I said that hosting was a dubious honor? To clarify, it's less like inviting a few friends over and having a pool party and a lot more like having the monster from Alien growing in your belly. It's a parasite that'll consume you from the inside. Take everything you have to feed itself before popping out of your stomach and leaving you dying in the corner. Then it moves on to the next victim. And of course, this starts with stadiums. Olympic-level stadiums aren't common. Not only do they demand space for the competitors, but also room for thousands of spectators. If the host city doesn't happen to have the proper facilities just lying around, they have to build them. These stadiums aren't cheap either. A city can spend a few billion dollars making the stadiums they need. The London stadium built specifically for the 2012 Olympics cost roughly $780 And that cost comes from the host city. Which really means it comes from taxpayers combined with building housing and the fun amenities like the free nail salons for athletes in Tokyo, well, hosting the Olympics is expensive. Rio de Janeiro spent 13 billion. Sochi racked up a bill of 51 billion. Now this is just the financial burden. There's also the issue of finding space. If a city is large enough to host the Olympics, it's gonna be crowded. And finding the space to build the infrastructure is not easy. But modern problems require modern solutions. And the solution for the past several decades has been to evict low-income families and bulldoze their houses. In Japan, one man was evicted from his home to build the stadiums way back in 1964. Then he was evicted again in 2013 to build stadiums for the 2020 Olympics. Still, better to be him than a cat or dog wandering the streets without a collar before the Sochi or Beijing games. Probably worth a Google. Now the best part of building these Olympic-sized stadiums, they're only really useful during the Olympics. Believe it or not, not every city in the world has regular use for a special Olympic-level diving pool or skate park. So these epic structures that cost so much just sit there. Maybe they can get repurposed, but usually not. It's clear why locals may not be thrilled to hear that they've been chosen as upcoming hosts. The Rio Olympics were marked with protests by displaced locals the city demolished a favela that housed 20,000 people. They were trying to make the city look safer and cleaner for the international tourists. And the favela was deemed too close to the stadium. So officials labeled it a security threat. Guess Rio went with the under the rug approach of getting ready. Because ultimately, Rio needed to look good. Remember when your mom would have guests come over and she'd make you deep clean the house for no reason? Like everything had to be spotless. God help you if there was a speck of dust. To your mom, the cleanliness of the house reflected on her as a host and the event as a whole. Anything that would break the carefully constructed mirage that no one sits on the sofa had to go. Your mom would do well on an Olympic planning committee. The stadiums can't be unbuilt. So there they stay. The houses are still destroyed. Thousands remain homeless for an event that may never happen again. And these stadiums stay empty. It takes hundreds of athletes from around the world to fill all of the stadiums. And when they left, well, one city couldn't do that alone. The bird nest stadium that Beijing was so proud of in 2008 has stood empty for 12 years. Rio displaced thousands of people because they wanted to control what the media would say. They wanted athletes talking about how beautiful and welcoming the city is. When you're shining a spotlight on your gleaming new stadium, you don't want people asking what's in the shadows. It's straight out of the Mufasa playbook. You must never go to the Shadowlands. Speaking of protests, they're actually pretty common at the Olympics. You have countries protesting international actions by not attending, and athletes protesting for civil rights during the event, and of course locals protesting the event entirely. Sometimes, an Olympics is lucky enough to get all three at once, like the 1968 Olympics in Mexico City. Protest 1? South Africa was excluded from the Games because of their apartheid policies. Many African countries, as well as the entire Eastern Bloc, threatened to boycott if South Africa was invited. So they were left off the party list. Protest 2? Ten days before the Olympics, over 10,000 students gathered to protest the Olympics and the government. It's unclear who shot first, but the protests soon turned violent. Around 400 protesters died, and over 1,000 were arrested in the subsequent days. Protest 3. This one you've probably heard about. The infamous Black Power Salute. When Americans Tommy Smith and John Carlos took to the podium, they each wore a black glove and raised it in a fist. The Australian Peter Norman, who shared the podium, wore a human rights badge on his uniform. Looks like Mexico City got the hat trick. Mexico City couldn't control their narrative. The games became about racial inequality and how people should protest. No one was talking about Mexico City or their skill in hosting the event. They became a footnote in a story they were supposed to be writing. Assuming the protests don't derail the planning, it's time for the fun part, aesthetic design. Time to choose a logo to identify your Olympics. Pick the colors that'll be plastered everywhere. Oh, and don't forget the cute mascots. What's an Olympics without making a cute plushie for a shameless money grab? And that's just the basic design. The Olympics are also a fashion show. Each country has native designers create looks for their athletes. For large countries, this can mean 80 plus outfits. There's one for opening ceremonies, one for working out, then competing, if you make it onto a podium, press conferences, closing ceremonies, and more. It's fun swag if you're an Olympian, It's another chance to laugh at poor fashion choices if you're not. Countries tend to stick to their national colors, so the designs go from repetitive to eye-searing. Oh, but don't worry. You, too, can buy a replica of one article of clothing for several hundred dollars. Hey, Ralph Lauren is a struggling brand that needs your support. But even this, too, is all about presenting the correct narrative. Participating countries don't care if their athletes are comfortable or if they look ridiculous. They care about highlighting designers from their country. They care about showcasing what excellence looks like in their country. They care about flaunting their wealth and success with a $400 tie-dye bucket hat. Now that I've talked enough about setting up the Olympics, let's get into actually running them. You know what they say, a plan never survives first contact with the enemy. In this case, the enemy is hundreds of horny Olympians. The Olympic Village is the name of athlete housing during every Olympics. It's a gathering of the most athletic and attractive people in the world. Naturally, sex is an issue. Since 1988, condoms have been distributed to athletes at the start of the games. In 1988, it was about 8,500 condoms. In 2016, the number went up to 450,000. With the COVID guidelines for the 2020 Olympics asking athletes to avoid close contact, only 160,000 were handed out. Those are the tough decisions the IOC has to make. When the athletes aren't fucking like bunnies, they're still causing problems. No one remembers when things go right, but they never forget when things go wrong. Sometimes, it's American swimmers falsely claiming they were robbed at gunpoint in Rio, Sometimes it's the Russian pentathlete altering his epe to register hits he didn't make. Sometimes a figure skater's husband hires a guy to bash in the knee for competition. You know, little things like that. These are just the scandals that make it to the public. I'm sure the vast majority get covered up or the perpetrators just never got caught. What's important about these examples is that the blame was always put on the individual athletes and never their country or the IOC. It's always the fault of one bad apple. It's never the fault of an extremely competitive culture, or the mental and financial costs of training an Olympian, or being put in a situation where you're expected to carry the hopes, dreams, and geopolitical ambitions of your entire country. The Russian athlete who altered his epee was the reigning silver medalist during the Cold War. There was unbelievable pressure for him to medal again. So much pressure, he felt he had to cheat. Countries use the Olympics as the weirdest war games. They boycott to show disapproval of host country policies. They steal coaches and athletes to beat their rivals. They'll do anything to win. This comes at a cost, and it's a cost the athletes have to bear, not the organizations. USA gymnast Michaela Maroney, who you might remember from the meme or her gold medal performance in the 2012 Olympics, recently spoke out about her experience as an Olympian. She said she was forced to compete on a broken foot after the team doctor lied about her injury to her coach. Other gymnasts have talked about how they were minors at the time of competition, but their coaches and the IOC still kept them away from their parents. And that doctor Maroney mentioned? That was Larry Nassar, the man who sexually abused hundreds of minors during his time with USA Gymnastics. He's since been sentenced to 175 years in prison, But USA Gymnastics knew what he was doing long before he was sentenced. They knew about it, and they didn't do anything until the accusations became public knowledge. They didn't care about their athletes. As long as they were winning, it wasn't a problem. As long as the narrative was one they liked, everything was fine. This happens in every country and in every sport. The faceless organizations that run the sport the cities, and the Olympics themselves all care more about pushing the right narrative. The very real human cost of those narratives is easy to ignore. So why am I telling you all this? I don't know. I'll be the first to admit that despite everything I've just said, I love the Olympics. I don't care about sports except for two weeks every two years. I just love it. Seeing athletes from around the world compete to be the best. And every time I watch, I learn something new. Maybe it's about a new sport, like men's synchronized diving. Or seeing a new story, like the Philippines winning their first gold medal. I can't help it. I love the Olympics. But loving something doesn't mean being ignorant of its flaws. It doesn't mean ignoring the price that others have to pay for me to pretend that I knew anything about steeplechase five minutes ago. Maybe what I'm really trying to say is that as much as I love them, the Olympics shouldn't exist. Or more to the point, the Olympics as designed by the impossibly corrupt and narrative-driven International Olympic Committee shouldn't exist. Okay, really, I'm trying to convince you that the IOC should be fired past the International Space Station. Sure, it's a fun two weeks as a spectator, but it hurts thousands of people every year. Cities that host the Olympics put an insane burden on their residents. No one should become homeless for dressage, lose their job for table tennis, or have their taxes go to synchronized swimming over actually improving the city. No one should spend years watching monuments built that serve as a constant reminder that your government cares more about international brownie points than your quality of life. If you're worried about the athletes, don't be. They still have international competitions for their sports they can still compete for global supremacy and set world records. The only difference is it won't all be happening at the same time. So if you really care that much about dressage or steeplechase or whatever the new sport is being added, just watch those instead. I hope you learned something new. And remember, the real curse is sharing this information with your friends, family, and unsuspecting coworkers. If you enjoyed this production, Like, share, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And please, tell us some of your most cursed knowledge by joining us on the forums at EpsilonTheory.com. Live pigeon shooting and poodle clipping were featured events at the 1900 Olympics.